I'm completely dependent on the power of the Word of God. Like God's Word is what builds up the church. It's what builds up uh, the saints. And I'm just as needy this morning as you are. I'm just as dependent on the power of the Word of God as you are. And I think it's good for us just to remember that. It's good for me to be reminded of that. And it's good for all of you to be reminded of that. Um, and But here's the, the really good news this morning is that like God, who created everything that we see all around us, He created you and me. He is the one who, in His wisdom, set up the seasons of the years to change and brings this cooler weather that we feel this morning that, that brings refreshment to our souls. He's the one that causes the sun to rise. Like he created everything. He's the Lord of creation from before all time and on into eternity, and yet He's here with us this morning. He's in the midst of this little church in the middle of Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., this tiny little speck on this map of the world, which is a tiny little speck in the universe. And he is with us. And by the power, and, and he ministers to us by his word, which is living and active. Like we learned last week, blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who Keep what is written in it, for the time is near. We're almost home. Um, just to kind of refresh us, so John has received a revelation from Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's a revelation from Jesus Christ to give to the church, to show the church the things that are, the things that are to take place. So Revelation is, is primarily a letter from Jesus to the church, and this morning, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, and this is kind of the introduction to the letter. And in these verses, John describes his encounter with Jesus and how he received this revelation from Jesus. And we, we get introduced to who Jesus is in this passage. We get a description of what Jesus as the Son of Man is like. And it sets the table for chapters 2 and 3, which we'll start getting into next week, which are a series of seven letters to the seven respective churches of Asia, addressing their specific situations in a specific time and place, but which are applicable to the church uh, throughout history. And then chapters 4 and onward continue to address the church as a whole, explaining and describing the events of the last days and judgment day. And so the purpose of this letter is to help the church to faithfully endure the tribulation and temptations that are here now and that will ever increase as we draw nearer to the return of Christ. And we talked about last week how what we begin to discover as we walk through the book of Revelation is that things are not pretty in the last days. Things will become difficult. There will be difficult days ahead. We, it's not just the book of Revelation that tells us that. It's, you know... All throughout the New Testament, we're told that. But the summary of the message from Jesus to the church in the book of Revelation that we talked about last week is that although it may appear that evil is triumphing, God is working out his purposes to bring about the ultimate defeat of evil and the final reward of his saints. Although it may appear that evil is triumphing, when we look at the news when we look at the world around us, when we look at our family life and how everything's a mess, or when we look at our home and how everything's a mess, it might appear that evil is triumphing. God is working out his purposes to bring about the ultimate defeat of evil 
and the final reward of the saints. This morning we're going to look at Revelation 1, 9 to 20. It's on page 965 of the Pew Bibles if you are using one of those. So I'm going to read the passage and then we'll jump into what I think is just an incredibly encouraging and powerful text this morning. And I'm just praying that that it builds all of us up today. So here's the word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. That you've given us your word to bless us, to bless your church. Help us to hear this morning. Give us ears to hear. And help us to keep what is written in your word. I pray that you would build up your church today. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by knowing that you are with us, Jesus. You are in the midst of your church and that you have overcome death, that you are alive forevermore. Lord, those two truths can radically change our lives, and I pray that it would this morning. I pray that you would build us up and that you'd be preparing us, God, for we don't know what the future holds. But I pray that even right now, you would be preparing us to persevere through whatever you call us to walk through until the day when we go home, until the day of your return, Jesus. Lord, it's my desire that every single believer in here this morning would persevere to the last day, would continue trusting in Jesus, would not be seduced by the world, would not be pressured into conformity of the world through persecution. So God, please hold us fast. Please use your word to build us up and strengthen our faith this morning. And I pray for anyone here that does not know you, Jesus, that's not trusting in you. 
I pray that this morning they would see and know for certain that, Jesus, you are the one that has the keys to death. You are the way out of death. You are the only one who has defeated and conquered death, and it's only through you that we can be forgiven of our sins and receive life. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for those in this room that are not saved. We love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, remember, as I, as I said when we, we began, this letter is being written to help the church endure. And John himself was writing from exile on the island of Patmos for his faith in Jesus. And uh, under the Roman emperor Domitian, which is the emperor who would have been ruling Rome at this time, Christians were treated as criminals and as enemies of the state. And exile to islands like Patmos was a common form of punishment. And so what uh, John likely would have experienced is he would have been subjected to hard labor at a rock quarry on this island. He would have been given insufficient food and drink. He would have been forced to sleep on the hard ground outside in the elements. It would have been a very difficult and painful existence. And as he opens his address to the church, his description of the Christian life is really striking. He says, Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Out of all the ways he could have summarized what it means to be a disciple of Christ, that's how John summarizes it. Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Note here that there is no participation in Jesus' kingdom without also be participating in the tribulation and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. They are inseparably linked. And yet, this is counterintuitive to the way that we often think about being a Christian, isn't it? There's often this unspoken expectation that if we do what pleases God, then our lives will go well and we'll be able to live fairly comfortably. And so we, not so subtly, begin to build our lives and even our ministries in such a way as to maximize our comfort. And we kind of shelter ourselves from discomfort. The prosperity gospel preachers aren't shy about it. They will overtly claim that God wants you to live your best life now. And there is no shortage of preachers who are ready to sell you that message And when I say sell, I don't mean it as a euphemism. They intend to make a profit. But this cuts against the grain of the Bible's description of being a disciple of Jesus. Because Jesus said that if anybody wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The message of the New Testament is the opposite of your best life now. The message of the New Testament is that the best is yet to come, which I would submit to you is a much better message than your best life now. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, he said, Don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Scripture calls Christians to patient endurance as we wait for the day when Jesus returns and we receive our eternal reward. We will be in the presence of God forever. 
with new, resurrected, imperishable bodies dwelling on the, the restored, incorruptible earth where there's no more death, there's no more sickness, there's no more sorrow, there's no more sin, there's no more evil or temptation. I was just meditating on that and thinking about that as we were singing that song, We're Almost Home. Now, Christian, one of the things that you need to do is keep your eyes on eternity, on, on our future reward, because it's so important for us to remember that as we walk through the difficulties of this life, as you walk through the difficulties of, of parenting and watching maybe your children struggle, or as you walk through the difficulties of, of a sickness or an ailment that just won't go away and there hasn't been a cure no matter how many times you've been praying, or as you walk through the difficulty of just being in dismay as you look at the world around you and you see the violence and you see the anger and the, and the division, like, where's our hope? Our hope is that soon and very soon Jesus is coming back. And all of that will pass away. Like we're going to be, we're going to enter into what Hebrews 4 calls eternal rest. Rest from these weary labors. Rest from these trials. Rest from these hardships. That's where our hope lies. But that day is not here yet. And until then, we're called to faithfully endure. And there is a clear expectation that followers of Jesus will suffer for their identification with him. We will share in Christ's suffering together. And one of the reasons I think it's so important for us to walk through the book of Revelation is that I'm not quite sure how prepared we really are for that. For the most part, we've largely been free to worship God free of any serious persecution for 200 plus years in this country. Going back generations, we've had the freedom to worship God without that fear. And now, make no mistake, there are other factors that threaten the faithful endurance of Christians, like the rampant false teaching that is just all over the place in the church in America and that we, unfortunately, are exporting to other parts of the world, and the tremendous temptation to forsake Christ for the pleasures of the world. Those are very real threats to the faithful endurance of the saints in the here and the now. But I'll tell you, it is a whole different ballgame when Christians start facing the possibility of losing their jobs or their homes or having their children removed from their custody if they don't compromise. And maybe that all sounds fantastical to you. Maybe you hear that and you go, come on, that will never happen. But it shouldn't sound fantastical because brothers and sisters around the world face those very same circumstances right now, today. And the costs... It's, and it's not out of the realm of possibility for us in the future. Now, I don't know what the future holds, but I suspect that it will be increasingly difficult to be a faithful Christian in the years to come in our country. That's the way things are trending right now. The cost is already going up, and if you've been paying attention over the past 10, 20 years, culture is changing at a breakneck speed. And my burden is to help us persevere by pointing us to the promises contained in God's Word. After all, that's why the book of Revelation has been given to us. And the main point of this morning's message is that no matter what we may be called to go through, we can persevere because Jesus is present with His church and Jesus has power over death. No matter what we may be called to go through, we can persevere because Jesus is present with this church and Jesus has power over death. In verse 12, uh, John, in his vision, he, he sees one like the Son of Man among seven golden lampstands 
which verse 20 uh, explains symbolizes the church. And so what the vision describes is that Jesus is with his church. When I was a child, uh, I, I remember I, I was always afraid to walk into like really dark rooms or into a dark place by myself. But when my dad was with me, the fear just melted away. I could walk confidently into a dark room or, or if I had to go take the trash out when it was nighttime, if my dad was with me, I could walk confidently outside. The only difference was the presence of my dad. That was the only difference. It was still just as dark outside. The circumstances hadn't changed, but my dad was with me, and that changed everything. Presence makes a huge difference. There's something about being alone, especially in difficult circumstances, that makes us especially vulnerable, which is why it's so important for believers to know that we are not alone no matter what we are called to go through. And this is just an aside, not only is God with us, but I think it's intentional that John starts his letter by reminding the church that I am your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. He said, I'm with you as you walk through these things. And we have a cloud of witnesses throughout the history of the church that have walked through very similar things and much worse that we're going through. And not only are brothers and sisters around the world with us and we're called to be with them in spirit where we remember those who are in prison as if we are in prison with them Hebrews 10 says but God himself is with us Jesus is with his church and and this this isn't just anyone Jesus is incredibly glorious and powerful right I mean my dad you know when I was a kid I thought my dad was super strong and nobody could defeat my dad but the reality is is there were some things that could have assailed us that would have overcome even my dad and his strength right but there is nothing that can overcome Jesus in history. Let's just, let's just look at what we learn about the Son of Man here. So when John turned to see the one speaking to him, he experienced this amazing, visible, and audible experience of God's glory. Like, his senses must have just been overwhelmed. I mean, and as we're going to talk about in a second, they pretty much were because he fell at his feet as though dead. But it says that he saw among the seven golden lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is just really cool right here is what I'm about to describe. I was blown away as I was studying this. So the, the description of Jesus' attire highlights Jesus' role as our great high priest. This is the attire that, that the priest would wear in the Old Testament. And the seven golden lampstands, as we talked about earlier, represent the church. And so in the tabernacle, in the Old Testament, the lampstand with its seven lamps was in the holy place before the very presence of God. It, was, it sat before the holy of holies where the presence of God dwelt. So you had this lampstand and then the priest, it was the role of the priest in the Old Testament to tend the lamps in the lampstand to ensure that the light did not go out. And uh, uh, Greg Beal, who's a, a commentator, he noted that the Jews understood the light that came from those lamps to represent the very presence of the Lord. And so just as the priest tended to the lampstands in the tabernacle, ensuring that their light did not go out, so Jesus, our great high priest, stands in the midst of the church, tending to, the lamp, to our lampstands to, uh, by correcting us and exhorting us to ensure that our light does not go out. 
In other words, he ensures that we persevere. Is that not an amazing image we're getting here? Jesus, our great high priest, is standing amongst the church, amongst the lampstands, and he is tending to us. And we're going to see that tending to the lampstands unfold in chapters 2 and 3 as Jesus begins to correct and exhort the church. That's exactly what the high priest Jesus is doing in chapters 2 and 3. He is tending to the lampstands in these seven letters to the churches that Doug is going to kick us off on next week. The point is that Jesus, the high priest, is with his church. And as the high priest, he's made atonement for our sin and made a way into the presence of God once for all by his blood. And he ensures that the light will not go out in his lampstands by tending to us. In verse 14, we go on to read, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And this description is drawn from the description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, or, or Yahweh, God. Daniel 7, 9 says, As I looked, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So in, right here in Revelation 1, John looks and he describes Jesus in the same terms as God is described, as the Ancient of Days is described in Daniel chapter 7. And the pure white hair symbolizes the eternal wisdom and the pure holiness of God. John Piper comments on this verse. He said that John wants us to see something here about the age of Christ and the wisdom and the dignity that come with age, everlasting age. In other words, Jesus is not God's greatest creation. Jesus is God. He has always existed. He is perfect in wisdom. He has the wisdom of one who is the ancient of days, who has always been and will always be. He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. You look at the second half of verse 14, and John says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze. And this idea of his eyes being a flame of fire symbolizes Jesus' role as the judge who sees and knows everything. And, and we know that that's what that's alluding to because later in Revelation, in chapter 19, verse 12, when uh, it describes Jesus having eyes like a flame of fire as he comes on the white horse to judge the earth on judgment day. And as we'll see in chapters 2 and 3, the true condition of each church and of each Christian is clear to Jesus' eyes. He sees through facades and he knows hearts and motives, which means that he will be perfect and fair in his judgment. And the feet of burnished bronze symbolizes the strength and the stability of Jesus. He is unchanging. He is an immovable force and his rule is firmly established. It will never be moved. John goes on in the second half of verse 15 and he says, His voice was like the roar of many waters. This is another description used to describe God in the Old Testament, this time from Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2. And it's just meant to communicate to us that Jesus' word is powerful. His word has ultimate authority. And not only is it powerful, Jesus' word is effectual, meaning that when he speaks... His will is enacted. 
Jesus does not merely express desires. When he speaks, he enacts decrees. Things happen. That's how he created the earth and the universe and the sun. He spoke the sun into existence by the word of his command. Because Jesus is infinite in wisdom and because his word is powerful, we can trust what he has said. We can take his promises to the bank. We know that all the words of Scripture, including all that is contained in the book of Revelation, is true and it will come to pass. And in verse 16, John goes on to say, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is in reference to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 2, describing the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. It says that he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Jesus is the servant of the Lord whose word is the basis by which the earth will be judged. The word of the Lord searches the heart of every man and finds us out. You may know the popular verse, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. We quote it often. We read it to you. It says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is a popular verse, but it's commonly misunderstood because it's actually a warning to those in the church who think that unfaithfulness to Christ will go unnoticed. Those who harden their hearts and cave under the pressure of temptation and tribulation will be judged. The word of God will search out and judge both disobedience in the church and in the world. That's what it means when when there's a sharp two-edged sword coming from Jesus' mouth. So as Christians, we ought to continually humble ourselves before the word of God now, allowing his word to search our hearts and examine us and to sanctify us. This is much better than avoiding God's word or explaining away the clear meaning of God's word, pretending like we don't know it or that we're not going to be held accountable to it. Because like a very sharp sword, the word of God is a tremendous blessing to those who wield it properly, submitting to it. But it is devastating to those who handle it foolishly. So read God's word and read it with a spirit of teachability and humility. When you approach scripture, don't sit in judgment over God's word. Don't go searching for proof texts in the Bible to just reinforce what you already believe to be true. But instead, let God's word examine your life and your heart. Take the posture of the psalmist in Psalm 119, 18. I'd encourage you to memorize this short little verse and pray it. But every time before you read the Bible, the psalmist cries out, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your word. What a great prayer. Because it's it's expressing two things. Number one, it's expressing the reality that we can't even rightly understand and read God's word without his help. And number two, it's expressing a posture of humility. God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your word. Change me, search me. I want to know you. I want your word to change my heart and to change my life. I would urge you to approach God's word like that in your regular reading of the Bible. John goes on to say the last 
description here of the Son of Man, he says that his face was like the sun shining at full strength. It's like the, the images keep getting more and more astounding. And we come here to the climax. And this speaks of Jesus' glory, his brilliance, his majesty, his holiness. His glory is unsurpassed. And the sun shining at full strength is one of the most powerful images we can, con- you know, we can conjure up in our minds that we could possibly imagine. I, I looked this up this week, and every second, the sun releases 385 yada watts of energy. What is a yada watt? That's a good question. It's something like 10 to the 26th power. Uh, it's a lot. But to give you some perspective, one yada watt is the equivalent energy produced by one hydrogen bomb. So to kind of help us wrap our brains around this, every single second the sun is producing the same amount of, it's like 385 hydrogen bombs going off every single second that the sun shines. That's just mind-numbingly powerful. We can't even begin to fathom something like that. 385 hydrogen bombs every second. Boom. 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 (laughs) Just like blows my mind. And, and, and John, no wonder he fell at his feet as though dead. Because he's, he looks at his face and his face is shining like the sun, shining in full strength. And yet, all of this is just a description that can't even begin to fully describe Jesus' glory. Because keep in mind, the one that John is describing is the one who spoke that sun into existence with one word of his command. Just spoke it. So in light of this power and glory, no pun intended, there's no doubt, nobody caught my pun, in light of Jesus' power and glory, there's no doubt, Jesus is worthy of the worship of every living thing, including you and me. To refuse to worship Jesus as the supreme treasure of our life is the greatest evil. It's the essence of sin because he's clearly worthy of all of our worship. This is what Jesus, the Son of Man, is like. I wanted us to spend some time just looking at Him and gazing at Him because there's nothing better we could do this morning. We need to fix our eyes on Him and remember that when we say Jesus is with us, it's not just a a pithy little saying that we say when we're gathered together in church to help us feel better. No, I want you to feel the weight of what that means. The Son of Man, one whose face shines like the sun shining at full strength, is with His church. So we need not be afraid. We need not capitulate when Caesar tells us, bow the knee or get your head cut off. Like John Piper once said in a sermon, make my day, martyr maker. All right. Jesus is with his church. You may be inclined to respond to this image of Jesus much like John did at first, and you'd be right in doing so. Because John's response when he finds himself before the Son of Man is to fall at his feet as though dead. This, some of you may be thinking of, of Isaiah chapter 6 when you read through this passage. It's very similar to when Isaiah got a glimpse of the Lord sitting on his throne with the seraphim surrounding him, calling out, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
The implication is that it's not good for a man of unclean lips to look upon the Lord of hosts. It's a very dangerous prospect for us. Because God is infinitely holy and we are not. We are sinful. That's the proper, Isaiah's response and John's response is the proper response. It's the only proper response for a sinner finding him or herself in the presence of a holy God. Because there is nothing that we can bring to God to atone for our guilt. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And because of this, every single one of us deserves death. But the Son of Man responded to John in the same way that God responded to Isaiah, with grace. An angel touched Isaiah's lips with a coal from the altar, pardoning and cleansing him. And the Son of Man laid his right hand on John and said, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. The good news is that the death that we so deserve and that we so fear has been defeated by Jesus. This is truly an amazing statement, what Jesus says. He says, I am the first and the last, leaving no doubt that he is God. This emphasizes his sovereignty over history from before time and into eternity. And, but, but notice this, he, he is the first and the last, but he also died. He has always been. There's never been a time when Jesus has not existed, and there never will be a time where he has not existed. And yet we see here, I'm the first and the last, and, last, and behold, I died. Because you, you ask, well, how, how does that work? How did that happen? Well, this eternal God, he entered into history being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, the eternal king humbled himself to death on a cross. So Jesus Christ, the glorious Son of Man, whose face shines so brightly that John could not even look at him, came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the Son of Man who came to give his life as a ransom for many. He died and he was buried, but three days later, he rose from the dead and he's alive forevermore. He's alive forevermore, and he has the keys of death in Hades, meaning that he is the way to escape death. Only Jesus has the keys to escape death. There is no one else that can let you out. There is no other way out. It doesn't matter how many good works you've done. It doesn't matter how much you go to church. It doesn't matter who else you try to trust in. They are the wrong key. Only Jesus has the key, and it's through faith in him alone that we are forgiven of our sins and that we can receive life. So if you are not trusting in Jesus, I urge you to do so today. As I say often, scientists have said that 100 out of 100 people die. So we're going to die. That's the wages for our sin. And no one has the key to death but Jesus. You can be forgiven of your sin and receive life today by laying down your pride, admitting that you do fall short of this glorious, holy Son of Man and that you need His forgiveness and your mercy and you can call out to Him for it today. If you will believe that He died on the cross for you and rose from the dead, you will be saved. 
please, if you are not certain that you have made that decision, if you are not trusting in him moment by moment, day by day, start today. Don't put that off, please. We're not guaranteed another hour. We're not guaranteed another hour. And for God's people, for those in the room who are believers, knowing that Jesus is present with his church and that Jesus has power over death is essential to our perseverance. It's the promise of his presence and the hope of his resurrection that fuels lives of bold, selfless sacrifice. The kind of life that Christ calls all of us to live. Because Jesus has defeated death and because he's coming back again, we don't have to selfishly spend our lives maximizing our own comfort. How sad that for so many people, this life is as good as it's going to get. They are living their best life now, but they will pay for it in eternity. Because of our resurrection hope, believers don't have to cave when our earthly possessions are threatened. Just listen to the words of the author of Hebrews. He was encouraging the church there that he was writing to to faithfully endure, and he was reminding them of their past perseverance. He says in Hebrews 10.34, Recall the former days when you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I'm going to read that again. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Will that be your reaction when your property is plundered? When you lose your job because you're a Christian? When the government threatens to remove your children from your home because you're teaching them a biblical sexual ethic? Will that be your reaction? Well, by God's grace, it will be our reaction. And we will endure by God's grace because we have a better possession, an abiding one, that will last forever. Some of you may know the famous line by Jim Elliott. He was a missionary to Ecuador who was martyred along with four others trying to reach an unreached tribe. And he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's this perspective that enables believers to faithfully endure tribulation. And we need to have it because more difficult days are ahead and I want you to be equipped. I want our church to be equipped. You know, and it's also knowing that Jesus is present with us and that Jesus has power over death that enables us to live selfless, sacrificial lives now. It's it's not just that it helps us to persevere in the hard days that are to come, but we can live self, selfless, sacrificial lives right now because we know Jesus is with us and that he's overcome death. Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.21, many of you know this passage, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we, we always focus on the second half of that verse, and I think rightly it's, it's very powerful, to die is gain. But Paul's confidence in Jesus' resurrection and supreme worth not only fueled his belief that to die is gain, it fueled his desire to live for Christ now. He described his life in 2 Timothy as a drink offering being poured out to God. That's because Paul knew that the best is yet to come. In the kingdom of God, the first will be last. 
and the last will be first. In the kingdom of God, whoever wants to be great must become a servant. And two of our values as a church are uh, risk-taking faith and selfless service. Two things that we want to flavor everything that we do as a church and everything that we do as members of the church. And I had never considered how closely linked those two values are until this week. Risk-taking faith and selfless service. And I, I realized, it struck me this week, that it's this kind of, of faith in Jesus' presence and resurrection that fuels selfless service. Like it's, it's the risk-taking faith that takes Jesus at his word that enables us to selflessly serve others. Like you can get up even though you're exhausted after a long day at work and you just want to lounge on the couch and watch TV, but you can choose to get up and serve your spouse by washing the dishes because you know that very soon you will enter into God's rest forever. And so you can pour yourself out now. You can give generously and sacrificially to support the ministry of the church because you know you are storing up treasure in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and where thieves will not break in and steal. You can give your life to planting churches in a closed country that's hostile to the gospel because in Christ you know you will live forever and that Jesus' promise holds true that those who are persecuted for His name's sake have great reward in heaven. I can keep going on and on. We could name many, many examples. The point is that no one lives lives of selfless, sacrificial service like that unless they believe that Jesus is present with His church and that Jesus has power over death. So if you find yourself tight-fisted with your time or your money, or your talents. In other words, if you find yourself not selflessly and sacrificially serving, it's probably because you love those things too much. And knowing that the best is yet to come will loosen your grip. That's what will loosen your grip. Fix your eyes on eternity. Fix your eyes on the Son of Man and watch your grip on your worldly possessions slowly loosen as you find that you're free from them. You don't have to be enslaved to them, which means that if and when the day comes when Caesar says, bow the knee or we're taking all your earthly goods, you can say, I've already lost them. I've already lost them. I already died a long time ago. And I'm free in Christ. And I will live with him forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. So God bless you, but I am not going to bow the knee to your idol. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I was just reading it this morning. Nebuchadnezzar said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Bow the knee, or I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar thought, oh yeah, I've got them. I've got them licked now. They're trapped. Of course, certainly they're going to bow the knee, because nobody wants to get thrown into a fiery furnace. What was their response? Let it be known to you, O king, that our God is able to save this, save us from this flame. But even if he does not, even if he does not, we will not bow down to your idol. We will not worship your golden image because we worship the one true God. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that they worshiped the God who had authority over everything, who has power over death, who is present with his church. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we get ready to close. And I just want to ask you guys, I want to close by asking you to reflect. 
reflect on this question to yourself. Where is your focus? Are you convinced that the best is yet to come? Are you convinced that the best is yet to come? That's what empowers us to live joyful, confident, peace-filled lives in Christ Jesus throughout the midst of, of the turbulent times that we live in. Those who know that Jesus is present with his church and that Jesus has power over death will persevere in the difficult days. And so I urge you to fix your eyes on the Son of Man and keep him there. I'm going to pray and then we're going to close uh, with a song. And uh, we're going to have a couple of people in the back just to pray. If, if you need prayer, if you just need somebody to pray with you, or maybe you just need to talk to somebody about where you stand right now in your relationship with God, um, if you're unsure of whether or not you are saved, then please make sure of that this morning. Don't let something little like, well, what are people going to think about me if they see me get back up and walk? But don't, don't put your eternity on the line because of what people think about you. Can I tell you what people in this room will think? They're going to they're gonna think, praise God, woohoo! That's, that's what they're going to think. They're going to be excited, okay? So don't just stay in your seat just because you're worried about what people think about you. If you need to pray with somebody and talk with somebody, then as the music starts playing, go into the back and please don't put it off. And pray with us, okay? Let me, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. <laughs> that's, God, I'm just thankful for your promises and your word and that, that you strengthen us, God, and that you use weak vessels like me that I get the privilege of being able to, to read and to teach your word and that we get the privilege of being your servants and, and each of us playing an integral role in, in the church as a member of the body. We're just so thankful for that privilege and so thankful that Jesus, you chose to save us and that you have died for us and risen from the dead and we have a resurrection hope. Our hope is in the one who has the keys of death and Hades. Man, thank you so much, Lord. I pray that you'd encourage us throughout this week by remembering those two things, that you are present with us and that you have power over death. Lord, may that just continually be wind in our sails throughout this week and throughout the rest of our lives. May we never forget that. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Sing minor days. Minor days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with Him. Yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. But mine is hope in my redeemed. Though I fall, his love is sure, for Christ has paid for.